1: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: What have you gentlemen done with my child? You've debased this child. You've sent him out into the streets. In rags of ragtime, tatters of jive, and boogie-woogie. But nobody had taken Lee DeForest's son or daughter. The inventor, or one of the inventors of radio, was talking about what the industry had done to his invention. Before we get into Lee DeForest's words, first just a reminder that if you're riding down that dark road, tail lights, yellow lines, maybe I'm picturing a big cactus... Lonely, dim lit gas station. Who's with you? Well, I am. Thomas Thornbury writes to me Just purchased my copy of the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics archive. And I'm looking forward to delving into it. Just now introducing my wife to your work, though you and Dan Carlin have long been my travel companions on those dark, early morning car trips that I have to take as part of my job. Well, thanks, Thomas. You know, We're going to talk about radio on this show, and I'm a big believer in audio because you can do something else. Jog, work out, play with the cat, water the plants while you're listening. As we'll discuss later, you can even play video games. And like radio before podcasting, we stimulate your ears, or we try to, and we think we stimulate your brain but not your overused, tired, 21st century eyes that are always peering into some glowing box these days. That's what's great about audio. So buy the archives, support your podcasters. 1888 is a great deal considering the sheer amount of content, scores of hours of discussions of great political topics and stories. Just go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com You find the link there, order. Within 24 hours, you're going to get a link from me, which is going to be the URL where you can get those archive episodes. Okay, so back to the letter from Lee DeVaris, one of the many inventors of radio, called himself the father of radio, but as we'll see, he got a little dramatic. He complains about his child radio being sent out into the streets in tatters of jive. He was writing to the National Association of Broadcasters really 40 years after he invented, well, a small part of the radio thing. But he wasn't an extreme moralist, like you might think, nor was he just against jazz music. Indeed, in his assault on the radio industry, it was not just Boogie Woogie that met his ire, but ads on the radio drew his particular disdain, the sheer amount of them. He wrote on, You've sent him out into the streets, to collect money from all soap and sundry for hubba-bubba and audio jitterbug. You have made him a laughingstock to intelligence, surely a stench in the nostrils of the gods of the iron sphere. You've cut time into tiny cubelets. These evils, though, might have been the result of what his very invention unleashed. Picture a small round bulb that fits into the palm of your hand look through it. It's made of clear glass. Touch it. It feels smooth, like a light bulb. And indeed, when it was first invented, it was used as kind of a dimmer light bulb. But this is 1906 high tech. On closer inspection, you'll notice a metal filament hooked up to a zigzagging wire that looks like a few paper clips attached to a metal square. In your hand, this bulb does nothing, but apply an electrical current to the filament and it can create a larger current than what you sent in. This is a vacuum tube, an amplifying vacuum tube. Now Lee Forest invented this triode, but he didn't invent the whole thing. That a current can go from filament to plate and turn from AC to DC power was already invented by Thomas Edison 20 years before. What DeForest did was invent that zigzagging wires that looked like a little paper clip in the middle. Of course, at the time, DeForest didn't think of it as a way to transmit the human voice. A writer in Radio Broadcast Magazine says that DeForest really, during his lifetime, didn't know much about how his inventions worked. When asked by scientists, he would always say he couldn't talk to them because of the patent lawyers. DeForest became the father of radio through the work of a younger man. DeForest would end up battling in court when Howard or E.H. Armstrong was a 14-year-old boy. His father bought him a book. The Boys' Book of Inventions. There, Armstrong read about Marconi's sending of the first wireless message across the Atlantic. And Armstrong decided he'd like to become an inventor. And in his attic, overlooking the Hudson River in Yonkers, New York, he began tinkering, transmitting Morse code signals. That was already going on at this time. Armstrong set out to make them louder. And he tried flying specially made antenna kites from the upper stories of his parents' house in Yonkers, New York. Got a sister to help. Then he built a 125-foot antenna pole in the backyard, the tallest in the area. A neighbor in Yonkers telephoned his mother to say that Howard was at the top of this pole, made her nervous to watch. Mom was supportive. If it makes you nervous, don't watch him. His mother was right to be supportive, because in his junior year at Columbia, Armstrong's diligent search for improved reception paid off. It was the result of a mistake. He was using DeForest's tubes and then noticed when he moved DeForest's little grids closer, there was a loud sound in his headphones. He had invented the regenerative, oscillating or feedback circuit, which greatly increased radio signals. And you needed to do that because the radio of the 19-teens could barely be heard. You needed special earphones. But now, Armstrong had made them loud enough to be heard across a room. His sister, Ethel, remembers the moment. Mother and father were out playing cards with friends, and I was fast asleep in bed. All of a sudden, Howard burst into my room carrying a small box. He danced around, around the room, shouting, I've done it! I've done it! I really don't remember the sounds from the box. I was so groggy just having been wakened. I just remember how excited he was. So DeForest didn't invent radio. Neither did Armstrong, really. So many names were involved in that. Marconi, Tesla, Edison. DeForest was, though, always around all the developments in radio. Armstrong nor DeForest were the first to broadcast. Neither were the first to become DJs to speak into a microphone and play music, or even to figure out that if they did that, people might listen. Most historians in your history textbook will assert that radio broadcasting began in 1920 with the broadcast of KDKA in Pittsburgh. announcing the results of the 1920 presidential election. But really, KDKA was really just the first licensed station in the United States. And not even that, it was just the first licensed station in the United States after all the radio had been turned off during World War I. Station 8MK in Detroit was broadcasting on a regular schedule in 1920 at the same time and delivered those returns as well, but didn't get the press. DeForest was broadcasting in New York well before that. In 1919, University of Wisconsin had a college radio station. But they were all beat out by Doc Charles Herald in San Jose, California, who started broadcasting using a crude arc receiver, no vacuum tubes. He started in 1909 with call letters FN, then 6XF. He built an audience by publishing an ad in a wireless equipment magazine. We have been giving wireless phonograph concerts to amateur men in the Santa Clara Valley. His big moment was during the 1915 San Francisco World's Fair. When he broadcasted live, tens of thousands watched him doing it. Radio then was just in its novelty stage. It was something to see. It was a freak show. A geek show. What does that mean? We'll get into that. If you listened to Harold, you did so with a crystal set, picking up a very faint voice through a set of headphones. This was the time of the radio geek. Yes. With the kits being mailed out, this was much more of a hobbyist undertaking radio during the 19-teens. And there were less corporate brands than there were personal inventions. Small equipment companies. Make it yourself. It was very similar to the 1960s and 1970s in Silicon Valley. Now, share something. I just watched this movie, Computer Chess, about a group of computer programs in 1980 at a computer chess convention trying to defeat each other. Compiling code, running diagnostics, evaluations, it's... A great movie for many reasons, but I think that there you can see the idea of computers as this foreign thing. They're having a computer convention. We don't really think of computers that much anymore. It's just whatever the hardware that exists. You know, maybe a little bit. I I like this laptop better than that one. It's the content. It's the apps. I mean, if anything, we're concerned about hardware when it comes to the phones, but even that's getting boring. Well... Back in the 19-teens, radio was where computers were in the 1980s. It was the stuff of geeks. Now, I don't mean to insult, but I think that's the best way to understand the radio people at that time. The word geek comes from the English dialect geek, from middle-low German geck, and it describes a fool. The word is commonly used to describe the type of freak that might appear in a circus show. Indeed, at the time we're talking about when radio is invented, if you use that term to describe, say, DeForest or Armstrong, they might shake their head. What are you talking about? Because you were talking about a circus show. Here's a classified ad from Cincinnati in 1916, using this word, gentleman offering his services. At liberty, snake charmer or geek man would like to join a show going south. But the word goes back farther. Shakespeare referred to geeks in his English country talk picks it up in the play Twelfth Night. Why have you suffered to me imprisoned, kept me in a dark house, visited by a priest, and made me the most notorious geek and gull that invention ever played on? So for quite a long time, geeks were bad people, fools, knaves. Then it became a little more of an eccentric person. Maybe in the 1950s, you start seeing the word mean more eccentric, like an egghead. Jack Kerouac writes, Brooklyn College wanted me to lecture eager students and big geek questions to answer. By the time of the 1970s, the term computer geek is out there. Then after the 1990s, when geeks like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs started getting rich, it became really, really cool to be a geek. Well, such it was with the radio industry. It went from geek enthusiast, amateur in the 19-teens, really cool in the late 1920s, and corporate by the 40s and 50s. The people around it became very rich. RCA Corporation, Emerson Radio, all of them made big bucks in the market and in the stock markets as well. All of this change did occur to a great extent with Pittsburgh KDKA and its announcement of Warren Harding's election. People thought, if we can broadcast a presidential election, we can broadcast all kinds of news events and music and radio plays sponsored by soap companies. And the technology grows 5,000 units of radio sets in the United States, 1920, to more than 2.5 million units in 1924. 600 stations developed by 1922. Imagine having one of them old sets. If you're a country boy, not used to doing much outside of your surroundings. Now hearing perhaps Chicago's first radio station, KYW, broadcasting exclusively opera, the waldorf Astoria Orchestra, in addition to playing dinner music at the famous hotel of the same name, now starts broadcasting on the radio. Beautiful Ohio in dreams, can I see? You probably only read about a president of the United States in the newspaper. Now you hear your first president, Woodrow Wilson, captured on radio in 1923, the first broadcast that goes nationwide. He honored the soldiers, but also used the new radio medium, to have one last complaint in his life about the American withdrawal from the League of Nations and the abandonment, he said, of his allies. His voice is weak. He would die the next year. You might hear great moments in history a dramatic radio series broadcast on NBC, offering recreations of famed historical events. Is that you, John Hancock? Yes, Paul Revere, what's the matter? Matter enough, Hancock, the Redcoats are coming. You might hear The House of Myths, an early radio series which aired on NBC, which would tell stories of the Greeks and their gods. It had an East Coast version, which was bland, by-the-book versions of the Greek myths. Boring. And then... A station from the West Coast rewrote them, as an early radio writer, Carlton Moore, said. They said, we can't do these. They're terrible. Can you take them and rewrite them? So they sent me home, and I conceived the idea of doing the myths in modern vernacular with a heavy tongue-in-cheek innuendo on the sex life of the gods. During those days, the thing that was so pleasant was that there were no standards in writing. You were turned loose to think of something and do it. And out of this maelstrom of confusion came many of the shows that later developed into coast and national shows. It was a wonderful time. It was a new era in a new medium. And everybody had their opportunity. Good for some. This was fabulous stuff. But pretty quickly people realized with all this radio that they could get their message out in the new medium. But maybe their message was scary to some. Radio was being used to advertise things starting with very innocent concerts for the music that was being played on the radio, then going to products, first in a subtle underwriting form, and then direct calls to action. People were using the radio to spread religious evangelism, political theories to run for office. John R. Brinkley in Kansas, among other things, espoused over the airwaves remedies, which he saw. The American Medical Association was very upset over a program which he read listener mail describing symptoms, and then prescribed over the air, describing the medication by number. When listeners visited a pharmacy, Brinkley got a kickback. As the Literary Digest stated in 1924, the power of one man through broadcasting station must be curbed if that man persists in affronting the sensibilities of a large or small part of the population. Radio should not appeal to vulgarities or morbid affairs. Too many propagandists, religious zealots, and unprincipled persons are using radio to grind their own axes. There were technical issues, too. The rapid spread of radio led to inevitable confusion, disruption of frequencies. By 1926, there were 15,111 amateur stations and 500 official broadcasting Commercial stations. Listeners of one program were frequently interrupted by overlapping messages. In the words of the New York Times, the radio signal almost anywhere on the dial sounded like the whistle of the peanut stand. Now I discuss this today because Kristen McHale writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. Anybody who has friended me knows that I like to play video games a lot. Why does it seem like politicians? are using any opportunity to claim my preferred form of entertainment as the bane of human existence. For anyone who's wondering, Bruce makes great listening for puzzle games. But if you're slashing zombies, just go with Led Zeppelin or Metallica. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, It's good to hear that I can at least help with some of the video games. But you're right. Video games constantly under attack. Here's a Lamar Alexander, Senator of Tennessee, I'm going to wait and see on these bills, you know, but I think video games is the bigger problem in this country than guns because video games affect people. Cliff Stearns, a Florida Republican, building a video game around a premise based on very realistic, cold-blooded assassinations of innocent bystanders and police is more akin to hate speech, not free speech. So yes, your mode of recreation is under attack from the government on a regular basis. But if it makes you feel any better, politicians were also scared of radio. They did wait a little bit to pounce. The industry wanted to move faster, the commercial part of the industry. But once they did, they did in a big way. The airwaves by 1927 were an open forum. Anyone with the expertise and equipment could reach millions of listeners. It was loosely regulated through its growth years in the 1920s. All you had to do was mail a postcard to one individual, Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover. And the secretary had no right of refusal. So, offering to bring order out of the chaos of radio, Representative Wallace White and Senator Clarence Dill, radio experts, began a year long fight to pass legislation to regulate radio, leading to the Radio Act, which was signed by Calvin Coolidge in February 1927. It was opposed. K. Pittman of Nevada, E. L. Davis of Tennessee, represented the rural American voice, the common people. They believed the Radio Corporation of America was conspiring to turn radio into a monopoly, and there were more conservative voices that opposed this South Carolina Senator Coleman Bleese was willing to create a federal radio commission if he knew what the politics and religion of the commissioners were. He wanted to know if someone would go on the air and say that he Senator Bleese came from a monkey to prevent that from happening Bleese introduced an amendment that would have prohibited all radio discussion of evolution. During the debate, the Bleas Amendment was rejected, but it did show how there were many cooks in this pot. With all these competed voices as the radio acts being debated, it helped when on a conference in Washington on radio legislation, Herbert Hoover spoke, said broadcasters needed free speech and the right to broadcast, and broadcasting needed To be free of malice and unwholesomeness. Radio was a public utility that needed to be, he said, double guarded, because it entered the home. Here's what Hoover said. We hear a great deal about the freedom of the air, but there are two parties to the freedom of the air and to freedom of speech for that matter. There's the speech maker and the listener. Certainly in radio, I believe in freedom for the listener. For senators and congressmen who were confused about the Radio Act and what it might do, the soothing words of the Secretary of Commerce, who at this time was quite popular, helped to allay the fears and pass the legislation. The Radio Act gave the Secretary of Commerce more control over who could be denied a license to broadcast. The instructions of Radio Act were specific. No person within the jurisdiction of the United States shall utter any obscene, indecent, or profane language by means of radio communication. The Federal Radio Commission created under the Act could limit the amount of advertising prohibited programs that it
1: decided were harmful to the public as a whole. Broadcasting, said the sponsor Clarence Dill, was a privilege. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
0: Not surprisingly, the major radio corporations, AT&T, General Electric, National Association of Broadcasters, all endorsed the bill. Negative voices were heard from the American Association of College and University Broadcasting Stations and the American Radio Relay League, a group of amateurs. They feared stations would lose their licenses, and in 1928, they were proved right. The commissioners created under the Radio Act, made drastic reallocations and told 164 stations to justify their existence or be forced to stop broadcasting. Many low-powered independent stations were eliminated. Educational stations fared poorly. WNYC, a city-owned station, still operates today, was forced then to share time with a commercial station, WMCA. City of New York went to court. They said the due process rights under the 5th had been violated. The judge said radio is a species of interstate commerce and could be regulated. So radio operating in the air was regulated directly by the federal government. The threat of radio from this free experimentation of the empire of the air to something under direct government control was similar to some of the problems then your particular medium of recreation you described video games encountered when they first appeared. And when they did, that would be in not in people's homes yet, except the very rich, but usually in storefront arcades. 1981, Franklin Square, New York, Long Island. Some 100 people demonstrated outside a video arcade in an effort to close the place, which they say has introduced a bad element to the community. Since the arcade... Fool's Ball World on Hempstead Turnpike opened in 1980. Vandalism and drug use are up in the area. Residents complained. At the same time, in other towns, there were statements at meetings that arcades should be closed because the video games caused children to become drug users and purse snatchers. It's hard enough to get them to go to church," said one resident complaining in a town zoning board. But even the concerns about video arcades in the 1980s had a precedent, and the concerns about pinball machines in bars and other establishments in the nineteen forties. The City of New York once banned pinball arcades completely. That was pretty common. Nutley, New Jersey Town Commission adopted an ordinance raising the pinball machine license from ten to two hundred dollars, which in nineteen forty eight a lot of money. The state of Alabama completely banned pinball machines. You had that famous sheriff, Bull Connor, later of Civil Rights Infamy, complained about pinballs bringing racketeers and gamblers to the state of Alabama if the state legislature loosened its pinball rules. Nor has this stopped. In 2012, the city of Beacon, New York, still had an anti-pinball law on the books and recently decided to enforce it when a retro pinball arcade opened up. The city council said that the issue is noise and only noise. The business next to the arcade and the residents above it had a legitimate complaint about noise. Thomas W. Thornbury writes, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, Elected officials have been taking pot shots at games for a very long time. The intellectual predecessor to video games were the tabletop role-playing games, of which Advanced Dungeons & Dragons was once the most popular. In the early 1980s, various religious and other groups started attacking it on flimsy evidence when they didn't outright fabricate it. The movie Mazes and Monsters in 1983 was a propaganda piece designed to attack role-playing games as pastimes that drive teenagers to suicide and breaks with reality, even if there's no evidence of that. Thanks, Thomas. I have a personal history with that one. Why, my fighter had 40 hit points. Pretty good dexterity. His strength meant that you could do plus two damage on an eight-sided die. So it was that a man by the name of Jeff Perrin wrote a set of medieval miniature rules for wargaming where you would fight with many soldiers at once on this miniature battlefield with little miniature figures. It's 1974. There's no computers. You have your mind. And some dice. He was joined by another man, Gary Gygax, a year or so later, Dave Arneson came up with the idea that the rules could be applied to individuals rather than full armies. They completed a system initially called the Fantasy Game, but while doing the final draft, they came up with the title Dungeons and & Dragons. And the first release of the game, set of three booklets, grew among college and then high school students. Each year, more and more copies of the game were sold. So I enjoyed playing these games. I played D&D. And I think it did help my math a bit, especially percentages... And probabilities but I can remember objections to it I played with one guy once I remember who said look I don't want any demons in my game but he was okay with orcs and kobolds so we entered the caves and started fighting those guys there's a variety of activities that people like to engage in for entertainment and for creativity and for education are we talking about The 19-teens with a group of people with their mail-order radio kits trying to get Morse code signals from a ship. If we're talking about the 1970s and a group of people rolling dice and dreaming of a different fantasy world. If we're talking about the 1980s, where your spaceship consisted of a few pixels. Or the video games of today where everything's very real and you're stealing cars in Vice City. There's this spear of government justification, i.e., Herbert Hoover. Radio enters the house so we can regulate it. Or the local mayors. Video games causing crime because of the loitering. Again, like so many political issues, it's hard to take to one side of the discussion and say one side's always right. But I do think you have a lot of people who played a Miss Pac Man and never became car thieves, who rolled eight sided dice and never lost their reality. You know, and all this might indicate that a guy playing Warcraft may make a fine CEO or senator very soon. I do hope that we will never see a department of podcasts anytime soon. And I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We got the offer there, 1888. You get the archive of everything we've done and most of the programs we've done since 2006. Lots and lots of episodes there. And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. I could use some more favorites on Stitcher. I could use a review on iTunes or just write about it on your blog if you have one or in some form where people can see it. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez